So last week, Shannon opened up uh, Amos, the book of Amos, and he was um, basically giving us a flyover overview of the book of Amos. And if you uh, were here last week, you, he kind of gave you a little bit of a sneak peek into what the book is going to be like. And um, for those that don't know, Amos, the word Am- his name means burden bearer. And so as you read the book, you kind of get that heavy feeling of everything is, he's just, just not a happy, it's not a happy message, okay? So for the next six or seven weeks, we're going to unpack and wrestle through some difficult issues. And um, today we're going to start, uh, start by doing that. But one of the things that I want to encourage you is if you didn't get a chance to listen to that last week, go ahead and it's out on the website. So make sure you go ahead and uh, listen to that. But one of the things that uh, Shannon kind of uh, teased out for us last week was four themes that he pulled out um, in the message that Amos the prophet had to the children of Israel. And of those four messages, they were sexual immorality, uh, cultural idolatry, social injustice, and personal hypocrisy. And so this is what Amos prophesied to the children of Israel and said, these are the four things that God is judging you for. And he lays out those four issues. So today, or again, over the next few weeks, we'll kind of unpack each of those issues and kind of um, look at how those are culturally relevant for us today. Right? Amos uh, was a prophet. 3,000 years ago, why does that, how does that affect us today? And that's what we're going to attempt and try and do over the next few weeks. So today we're going to look at uh, what I would call um, um, a cultural idol, and that is the idol of materialism. Okay? And materialism is um, probably not a new issue or new concept for most of you, but I want to take a different twist to that uh, today. And how I'm going to define materialism uh, for, my, for my sermon today, it's going to be, it's a broad term, and the way I'm going to define it is as ex- excessive concern for self and stuff. Okay? So not just worried about money or worried about a certain lifestyle, but just an excessive concern for self and stuff. So if you don't remember anything, Remember, materialism is the excessive concern for self and stuff. So, and we'll kind of look at what, how that kind of uh, pans out in this book and in our own lives. So, um, a couple of things that we want to look at um, as a background before we kind of jump into Amos' uh, these two things. First, um, Jeroboam was the king of Israel at the time uh, that Amos showed up to prophesy. Okay? So, Jeroboam is the king of the northern kingdom and Amos is a prophet or a shepherd in the southern kingdom. But God could not find anybody in the northern kingdom to prophesy, so he raises up a prophet from the southern kingdom, asks him to go up to the northern kingdom and prophesy. And so Jeroboam is king at the time of the writing, and he's a wealthy king. He has conquered the nations around him. He's defeated his enemies, and wealth and prosperity are just growing. And they, uh, the Israelites have abundant prosperity at the time that Amos shows up. That's the first thing. The second thing is there was a popular, uh, prominent trade route that kind of flowed through the northern kingdom. And uh, what happened because of that is uh, people that were possibly like middle class or lower middle class were able to get wealthy and rich and kind of move up in society. And so uh, what the general uh, uh, cultural prevalence was people were generally prosperous and lived in abundant, with abundant stuff. Okay? Not very different from where we are today in our own culture, but that's kind of where Amos shows up to preach. Uh, and so those are the two things that I think we need to keep in mind before we kind of move into um, what does, how does materialism, how, did, how was it present in their own lives, and how does that 
present in our own lives. So just with that context, let's look at a few verses. And I don't have this on screen just because I'm going to jump around a little bit uh, through the book. Um, but I just want to read it out, a few verses, and then kind of just dig in a little bit into some of those verses to see how that's relevant to us. So first, we, we look at uh, Amos chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. By the way, we can keep your pages in Amos, and we'll just move in and out, out of that. But in uh, Amos chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, uh, he says, For three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. Next, let's skip to chapter 3 and verse 15. And he says, I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end. And in one, he goes on to say, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. I won't exegete that passage. I'll just keep going. 5.11 says, Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wines. That's 5.11. And the last one, chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. And he says, Woe to you, woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music who drink wine in bowls, not just cups, and anoint themselves with the finest oils but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. So, again, those are just a sampling of the things that God is accusing Israel of. He says this is kind of the lifestyle that they live in, and Amos is coming to preach uh, to them in, in, this, uh, in this context. So, one of the things I do want to emphasize on the outset is God is not accusing them or judging them for their wealth. Okay? What he's accusing them or judging them is the fact that their wealth had put blinders on them. And their blindness prevented them from seeing or caring for the people around them. The wealth put blinders on them that made them concerned or have an excessive concern for their own self and for their own stuff instead of everybody else. And that's what God was accusing them of. And so uh, you might, be, you might be, have listened to this, uh, uh, the verses and be like, uh, I don't do any of that stuff. Why is this relevant to me? Right? And so one of the things that I want to point out is while we don't do those exact things, right, the expression of materialism might look different 3,000 years ago as it does today, but the root is the same. And the root is that excessive concern for self and stuff, right? And it's actually not uncommon for wealthy societies like ours to kind of fall prone to that, uh, prone to that danger. So that's what we're going to spend some time looking at, um, uh, looking at uh, in this passage. So... Um, so we live in a prosperous society. So whether you see yourself as rich or wealthy, like I don't have uh, you know, summer homes and winter homes or whatever the case may be, uh, but we as believers because we, and, and as, uh, as people that live in this culture, we are affected by it because this sin of materialism is contagious whether you are rich or not. Right? Your mind, your heart, and your life and time and resources are all directed 
towards gathering self, prospering self and stuff as opposed to other people. That's what we're going to kind of spend some time. And so as we kind of go through uh, the, the, this, this uh, message and kind of look at the ne next few verses, one of the things I want us to kind of not get distracted by and kind of focus on is that materialism is not necessarily the fact that you have a lot of stuff or that you are wealthy, but it is more of a posture of the heart. The posture of the heart kind of is directed and focused on stuff and self and convenience and comfort, right? And when all of your resources, time and energy are directed to flourishing in those areas, you know you have a problem of materialism. And that's what I think we're going to unpack. So um, one of the things that, uh, you know, if, you, if you're interested to, if you're curious to see, okay, do, do I struggle with materialism or do you struggle with materialism? Ask yourself this question. Is my life fine-tuned for comfort and convenience? Is my life fine-tuned for comfort and convenience? And um, as I was kind of preparing this, and I asked myself that question, and it's a hands-down yes. Right? The way... Um, uh, all of my life, my schedule, my, the way my, uh, we conduct stuff at our family is all uh, directed to being as efficient as possible and as comfortable as possible, right? How do we eliminate pain from our lives is th one of the main things that we spend a lot of time thinking about it. So one of the things that happens is, and as, I, as I think about how does, how does that happen to me and how does that happen to each one of us, one of the things that we have to remember is that it, this is not an intentional decision. We don't wake up one morning and say, I'm going to be materialistic, okay? We don't, we don't that it is a slow, uh, unconscious choice a lot of times. It's a slow process. It's a slow fade into materialism. It's not a conscious choice where concern for self and stuff kind of creep in and replace the concern we should have for others and for God. And so one of the things that we uh, kind of have to be careful is not to dismiss it because we're like, I don't really have that issue. Or I actually love God. And actually one of the things that we see in this passage that I want to read for you today is that the Israelites thought the same thing. They didn't think they were materialistic. Right? Can you believe it? Like, as you like, look at these passages, like, how do you not catch that? I mean, you're drinking from bowls instead of cups. I mean, that has to say something about being excessive, but it, they didn't get it. Uh, and here's a couple of verses to uh, kind of show you that uh, from the passage. So last week, Shannon had talked about how when Amos started giving the judgments out, he started from the outer neighbor of Israel. He didn't even start with Israel. He started with, um, in, in, in the first chapter, uh, he started with, um, in verse 3, he started with Damascus. Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, he goes around in concentric circles. And he comes to Judah, which is the southern kingdom. And as, as, God, as Amos is kind of giving out these judgments, Israel's like, yep, we knew they were bad people. We knew they were, uh, they were heathens. We are God's people, but they were heathens. And then God says in, uh, in chapter 2, verses 6, he says, for three transgressions of Israel and for four. And Israel's like, what? Us too? We're God's people. We're the chosen people. You've given us wealth. You've given us prosperity. How could we be materialistic? And uh, is, uh, if you look at the judgments to Israel, it's three times longer than their, than their neighbor's judgments. The second thing that I want to point out is in chapter 3, um, verses 3 and on down, 
God gives Israel seven images that show the cause and effect that he's about to tell them. So he says, I'm going to give you seven images, and these seven images are going to show you how my judgment is not without cause. So look at chapter 3 and verse 3, and he says, Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Meaning, do two people travel together unless they've agreed? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Do you think the lion's roaring just for fun, or is there a cause for his roaring? Jesus give, uh, Amos gives seven, uh, seven of those images. I won't go through all of it for the sake of time. But look at verse 5. It says, does a bird fall into a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Like, does a bird get trapped without a trap? It's a rhetorical question, right? And uh, God's basically telling, through Amos is telling Israel, your judgment, the things that, you, uh, um, that you're about to experience is not without cause. And so in the same way, just like the Israelites thought that their lifestyles uh, did not express materialism, a lot of times we can, be, uh, we can be in that same mindset. And what they were saying as, we, as you look through the rest of the book is they looked around and it's like, my friends, my neighbors, my church people, they all live like me. What's the problem? They have the same types of car that I drive, same type of homes. They, they spend time like I do. We, they, their kids do the same activities that my kids do. Why am I being singled out? Or why, as a believer, am I uh, singled out? And this is what um, Amos had to come to, to show them because God tried speaking to the children of Israel and they didn't listen. And so he said, he raised up Amos, a prophet from the southern kingdom, to go up to the north to prophesy judgment against them. And so one of the things that uh, Amos tells them is you can keep doing your religious activities, uh, elaborate sacrifices, um, religious uh, ceremonies, all that's good and fine. But understand that at the end of the day, your heart and your mind is focused on pursuing self and stuff, not me. So you're, I'm, I'm uh, indifferent to your religious ceremonies and your services because your heart is focused on self and stuff. So Amos does this by showing these three, uh, the three, the, these three passages by, uh, or excuse me, these two uh, passages that I read where he shows a cause and effect in their lives. So in the same way, we need to examine our own hearts. We don't want to wait uh, and look around our neighbors and say, well, my neighbors and friends do the same thing, so it might be right, it must be right for me to do it. And that's one of the things that Amos is trying to help the children of Israel pay attention to. So we need to, we need to dig um, deeper than just looking at our friends and neighbors. So that's what I want to do. So that was all of my introduction. Okay? I have three points for you today, and it will be quick. Those three points will be fairly quick. But the first one is, how does our love for self and stuff replace our love for Jesus? How does that happen? And what happens in our lives when this switch happens from God to self and stuff? And how do we combat this sense of materialism? So those are the three things we're going to look at. The first thing we're going to look at, how does our love for stuff, self and stuff uh, replace or crowd out Jesus? Well, to understand kind of um, how that love for materialism replaces our love for Jesus, we have to kind of look at how love is formed in our hearts. Now, uh, I'll give you the, the way I think love is formed in our hearts and we'll kind of 
work through that, okay? So love, in, in, my, in my perspective, love is formed in our hearts just like a habit, okay? So whether it's like blinking, breathing, brushing your teeth, that's how love is formed. It is formed through repeated action. So uh, when we look at, uh, you know, for example, if you were to wake you, if your habit is to wake up in the morning and get a cup of coffee, uh, and if that's your, uh, that's your habit, you're all, almost every morning you're doing it without thinking about it actively. Is that correct? Right? You're unconsciously doing it. And so in the same way is how love uh, is created. And so as I'm explaining this and I'm kind of working through this as I uh, was kind of preparing for the sermon, I, I recognize the inadequacy of my position. Okay? Because you might be saying, well, that's not what Justin Bieber and Justin Timberlake and Blake Shelton and the Hollywood movies and Frozen and uh, Disney and uh, all the rappers. That's not how they define love. Right? So I feel, I feel a little bit inadequate trying to explain love as a habit when everybody else is telling you love is an emotion or love is a thought or love is a uh, decision. Right? Because when you look at it, uh, at, the, at the heart of it, at the bottom, at the root of it, Love is a habit that is formed and developed unconsciously. So here's an example. So when Lindsay and I got married three and a half years ago now, um, I was in love with her, and I thought, I mean, I loved her the most I could. I mean, this was the height of our, you know, height of our love. Now, three and a half years later, looking back, I love her so much more than I had even capacity to love at that time. Okay, now, we're fairly newly married, so we're three and a half years only. But if you've been married any long, like 20 years, 25 years, 35 years, you know this to be true. You love your spouse more today, 30 years later, than you did when you first got married. Right? Why is that? Uh, that's because you have spent your time, actions, uh, your money, your thoughts in serving your spouse. All of that has been directed to serving your spouse. And what does that do? That unconsciously builds a habit of how you love your spouse. This is true for children too, right? When you see your, um, uh, when, we, when we bought Ezra home, we, we loved him. We were like, oh, well, he, when he was in the womb, we loved him. We hadn't even seen him. But as he's gotten older, in 10 months, we, uh, we see our love for him growing and growing much more than we could have even ever imagined. That's because we have spent a lot of time caring for him. We've spent a lot of time, uh, you know, raising him. Even though it's only been 10 months, it feels like a long time, right? But that's what has uh, caused a love in our heart to grow, right? And so while I'm not saying that uh, love, there's not an intellectual aspect to love, like you make a decision to love somebody, or that there's not an emotional aspect to it, at the, at the root of it, love is a habit. And it is cultivated as a habit. So what does that mean for us? Let's just kind of work through what that means for us. So if love is like a habit and it does not necessarily grow consciously, it grows kind of subconsciously in our lives, there could be two, there's two implications of that. One, we could be learning to love in places that we don't even realize we are. Okay. Second, we could be learning how to love and what to love in places we don't realize. Okay, two implications that I want us to spend some time. If love is a habit, and it is formed subconsciously through repeated actions, we might be learning to love in places we don't realize. 
and we could be learning how to love and what to love even without realizing it. So for example, um, you know, uh, you, you come here on Sunday mornings to learn how to love Jesus. Yes? Right? Uh, at home, you might be teaching your children how to love you. They might be learning how to love on the playground, not to be mean, etc. But what I am saying uh, is if love is a habit, you could be learning how to love even at a concert or at the mall. Or at some place you don't want your kids to learn how to love. While they play video games, while they are disobedient, while, they, while you are not kind to them, they might be learning how to love. And so if, if that's the case, there's a few things that I think we need to be careful about. Because as professing Christians, we might show up here for two hours on a Sunday and say, Jesus, I love you. I want to serve you. I want to be for your kingdom. And the rest of the six days and 22 hours, your routines and rhythms might be bent towards a rival God. If, even if you profess for three hours on a Sunday morning, the rest six days and how many ever hours, your routines and your rhythms are probably forming your love for a different God. If your life and your routines and rhythms are bent towards being for self and stuff and comfort and convenience, there might be a rival God that you're worshiping compared to Jesus. And as that rival God, as you can tell the time differences, as the rival God kind of grows, it, takes, it slowly creeps into our lives and crowds out the love we have for God. And that's, I think, the key thing that we need to keep in mind. So materialism is not a conscious choice. It is a choice. It is, a, it is the way it appears in our hearts and creeps into our hearts. It's by influencing our routines and rhythms. And that causes this God of materialism to our idol of materialism to grow in our hearts. So uh, when we look at uh, how idols are formed in the lives of believers, that's how they're formed. They're not formed by conscious choice. They're formed in the times and routines and rhythms in your life outside church. And so um, this is actually what happened when we look at the book of Amos. Uh, turn to Amos chapter 7 and verse 10, uh, just to kind of look, uh, emphasize this point. So in Amos chapter 7 and verse 10, uh, Amos shows up at uh, Bethel. And by the way, Bethel stands for, the name Bethel stands for what? House of God. Okay, Let's pay attention to what's happening at this, house, this place that's called the House of God. It says in verse 10, Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel shall go into exile away from his land. Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, or prophet, Go flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and it is a temple of the kingdom. So Bethel means house of God and Amaziah, the 
priest, his name means strength of the Lord. Right? Ironic a little bit, isn't it? Right? In the house of God, there was a different God. Jeroboam was now God instead of Yahweh. Amaziah, the priest who was to be the priest of God, has now been replaced because he is now the priest to Jeroboam. So consciously, out, outwardly, their names and everything that they were doing said that they worshipped Yahweh. But internally, with their lives and lifestyles, they worshipped a different God. They worshipped Jeroboam because he gave them the prosperity. They loved him more than they loved Yahweh because they gave him their comfort and stuff and their um, identity. And so one of the things that we have to keep in mind is while externally we might profess Jesus, it is important to pay attention to the rhythms and routines in our lives that are internal that we do. So their lifestyles slowly replace their allegiance to Yahweh to a rival God that I'm going to call materialism. And that's why we have to pay attention to the rhythms and routines in our lives because that's where our loves are formed. Not intellectually, not emotionally, but in the routines and the rhythms of our life is where love is formed. And so, um, I hope I've convinced you to just pay, at least pay attention to the routines and rhythms of your life because that's where love is formed. And by the way, our culture understands this very well. Um, for example, if you were to... Um, if you were to look at any ad, Super Bowl ad or anything on TV, I, I, the other day I was watching um, the ad for an old ad for Harley Davidson. If you watched the ad and you didn't know what a Harley Davidson was, you wouldn't even know it was a, uh, it was an ad for a bike. Right? It said it had uh, it, ha it it doesn't talk anything about the actual product that they're selling. It was some kind of feeling, and some kind of love that if you were to get this. Whatever they're selling, you could be this other person. If you drink this kind of beer, you could be this kind of person. Nothing to do with the beer. It's just this is just the uh, message that they want to focus on. So our culture is very uh, cognizant of the fact that they're not interested in changing what you think about the, that thing. They're interested in changing what you love. They want to influence what you love and what you want, not what you think. Okay. So for example, if you were to um, Go to the mall, for example. James uh, Smith, who's a theology professor and a philosophy professor, calls the mall the most religious site in any city. Right? And if you, were to, if you were to drive up to a mall, you first notice the size of it. It's like a cathedral, isn't it? Massive. You walk in, and you are immediately met Images and messages of what? Of what it looks like to have the good life. Isn't it? You walk down the... By the way, there's two things missing at a mall. Can you, can you guess what it is? Clocks and windows. Right? They don't want you to keep track of time and they don't want you to know what's happening. They want you to be disconnected from the outside world. Why? Because it keeps you engaged in what's going on and the message that they have. So you walk down the mall, the corridors see chapels and chapels lined up with mannequins, right, that are telling you what it means to have the good life. This is the stuff you should wear. This is the stuff you should buy. This is the gadgets you should have. Right? All telling you what? What it means to have the good life. So here we are on a Sunday morning trying to tell you that the good life comes by following scripture. 
about for two hours and then rest six days and however many hours the culture is telling you what the good life is so for example like uh, we just moved into this neighborhood I'll, I'll continue with the mall story in a bit but I just want to give you another example when we um, when I drive from Fate to Rockwall it's about a 15 minute drive 15 miles uh, uh, 15 minutes 15 minute drive I am first as soon as I leave my neighborhood I am uh, reminded as I drive in my Civic down the road I see what the car dealerships on both sides reminding me that I need to get a real car right not not the one that I'm driving but the ones they have on their lots keep driving down on the right side I see this huge furniture store right rooms to go or rooms there they go whatever the case may be right reminding me how I probably need some new furniture right the furniture that I have at home maybe they have a sale Maybe, you know, July 4th sales coming up, reminding me. Keep going down. See, raising canes on one end. Right? Lindsay's cooked dinner, but fried chicken sure does sound good now. Right? Keep driving. Right? Um, I, I see uh, 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 a, mall or a store with a mermaid in the front. And uh, they call it Starbucks. And I'm reminded of how... Drinking Starbucks would probably make me happy. Now, and I'm in Rockwall at this point, and right as I pass the Bass Pro Shop with all of the things that they're selling, I am bombarded for 15, and that's just 15 minutes of my day. I am told regularly how the things in my life are not adequate, how the things that I should love and should want are out there. Right? Same with the mall. As you walk down the mall, you are told exactly what it means to have the good life. What it means to live a prosperous life. What it means to have stuff. You can even get holy water if you go into what I call Starbucks, right? They'll, they'll feed you that because that, that's kind of the experience that they give you. That's what they're selling. Now, remember that what, why, while this might be a little bit of a sarcasm, it's important to recognize that nobody actually taught us how to be materialistic. How did we become materialistic? They gave us the mall. How did they make us, how did they make millennials, I'm just going to pick on us because I'm part of it, to be egotistic? They gave us a smartphone. They didn't tell you you need to be egotistic. They just told, give you a smartphone. How, did they teach you, how does culture teach you to not be patient or impatient? Amazon Prime, right? I don't want to wait seven days, even though this thing is coming from the other end of the world. Two days, about the best I can do, right? Again, in the same way, like, if forming relationship looks like this for you, Facebook, instead of sitting across people, bearing their burdens, listening to them, the way your love is formed for other people, begins with saying, I will do it at my convenience. And that's the thing I want us to remember today, that our loves are not formed consciously, but neither is what we love formed consciously. It is fed through the routines and rituals of our lives, the things that we are fed. And if we are not paying attention to those things, then our hearts and our minds start forming idols that we are not even conscious of. And so remember that uh, 
we have to be careful uh, to avoid. Um, my wife's not here, so I'm going to use this example. Uh, she's probably going to listen in the podcast, but at least I won't be in the same room with her. You know, we, the Israel, children of Israel uh, had a golden calf, right? Remember that? Moses went up to the, went up to the uh, mountain to bring down the Ten Commandments. And he shows up and they have a golden calf. They had just come out of Egypt. And I, I always used to think, and most of you probably thought, it's like, how could you be so dumb? Or how could you be so stupid? God, God is here in this mountain. It's thundering and lightning and you build a golden calf. And, and you know, it's easy for us to, again, all these years looking back, try and judge them. But let me just tell you, like, today's idols don't look golden or they're not calves. Right? Sometimes they look like a white dog with a target on its eye. Okay? And if those are the things that are feeding your love, it might look cute and cuddly, but they're still idols. And it's something that we have to be careful for, something that we have to pay attention to. And by the way, this is also how our children learn how to love. If our children... What to spend more time watching TV than serving our spouse, then that's forming their love. If they are, they spend more time watching, um, or if they spend more, most of their time getting, moving from activity to activity, from entertainment to entertainment, then they are reminded and taught what, what is the prime thing to be loved, which is themselves. If there is not a routine and a rhythm in your life that involves serving other people, being taught God's word, seeing how other people serve, then your children learn how to love, not consciously, but subconsciously learn to love things that are not healthy for them. The, the, they learn that materialism is the real God to be serving, not Yahweh. And we could be teaching them in the rooms for an hour or two hours, but that is not a competition, not even close to the things that the me- and the messages that the culture is telling them. And so what, is, what we have to pay attention to is what's working on our loves and feeding our loves? What's, what, what's working on it? What in culture, what in our lives, what rhythms and routines are feeding our loves? And uh, one of the things that we, we have to keep in mind is that these, the habits that we have, the routines and the rituals, whether it's going to the mall or whatever the case may be, and I'm just using this as an example, they are love-shaping forces. They're not neutral. So, for example, when Brian here in the worship team is leading worship and you sing worship with them, people, what's happening is not that you're just singing. That singing is doing something to you. When you confess that God is Lord or that um, wealth rots or moths eat it away, what is it doing? It is reminding you what wealth does. It, is do, it has an effect on you. It is not a neutral effect. In the same way, when you spend your routines and rituals, or for example, when you go to the mall, you're not just going to shop. The mall is doing something to you too. It is shaping what you do. And so one of the things that we have to keep in mind is that the rhythms and rituals in our lives are love-shaping forces, not neutral forces. Okay. That was my first point. Two more short points and we'll be done. So what does that mean? What are the effects of materialism in our lives? I'm still doing better than Shannon. So uh, materialism can cause idols to grow in our lives. I already explained that, right? Not consciously, but subconsciously. 
Materialism puts at the center of our lives us instead of Jesus. Materialism cause, causes us to value comfort and the well, in, over the well-being of others. It can put priority over self and stuff over Jesus. And mainly, and this is kind of the main message for Amos, materialism affects and has an impact in the lives of the people around us. Because it affects how we work, how many hours we work, what we do with our time and money, how we raise our kids, what activities we put priority over. And even beyond that, it has an effect because when we, when we are focused on our own self and our own convenience and our own comfort at the expense of other people, like the Israelites did, injustice flourishes, right? And injustice can be anything, where, uh, anything from no concern for the poor and unfortunate among us or less fortunate among us, or poor, uh, it could be uh, less of a concern for the people suffering among you, your brothers and sisters, right? So serving them is an inconvenience to me because I've got to watch the game, or I've got to catch the show, or I've got to do this or that, because the priority is us and our stuff, not others and God. So that's the fourth thing. So it kind of affects how we live and how we work and how we raise our kids. So my third point, how do we combat this? How do we combat materialism? Okay, if materialism is cultivated and grown as, as, as the result of the rituals and routines of our lives, we have to begin by asking ourselves, what is our vision of the good life? This is actually an easy exercise. As you guys get together for lunch or dinner with your kids or spouse, ask them, what constitutes the good life for you? You probably hear some interesting answers, right? Um, and don't say what you think it should be. Say what you think it actually is, because that's the beginning place to combat materialism. And secondly, do what I would call an audit of your life. Right? An audit is just basically keeping tabs of what's going on. If you say the vision of your life is to serve Jesus and be about his kingdom, take an audit of your time, schedule, activities, and priorities. Do they sync up? If they don't, change the activities, change the uh, priorities so that you can be in sync with what you think the good life is or what you think you want your children to understand the good life to be. Third, put God rules in place. Now, the, um, you know, um, growing up, uh, so I, uh, I grew up, my first 18 or so years I spent outside America. And um, we were not allowed to use the microwave. We had a microwave, we were not allowed to use it because electricity was so hot, costly. Right? So we had to use the stove to boil water, for example. So when I came to America and I was like, microwave, microwave can boil water in two minutes. And this was because it take like 15 minutes to boil it in a, in a pot. And the, other, the like a few years ago, I realized uh, standing in front of the microwave like frustrated because it was taking two minutes to boil water, right? And what I recognized over the last few years in my life is that the, in the culture that we live in, because of how prosperous we are and how wealthy we are, we don't recognize, we, there's nobody that's saying no to us, right? Like uh, the... Father's Day just went, uh, came and went, and Lindsay was like, hey, what do you want for Father's Day? I was like, 
don't know. I have everything I need. I know that question is going to come up again. Uh, my birthday coming up, and she's like, hey, what do you want for your birthday? I have everything I need. And most of you probably find yourself that. Like, that is not actually not common. You might think, like, what's wrong with that? That's actually not common. Most people in the world don't have everything they need. Okay? So what we have to do, what I recognize that I have to do, is to put some guardrails on my own. Because nobody else is doing that for me. So here's some, this is actually not something that uh, is new to us. It actually is uh, common. It has been common in church practices. Uh, and they call it spiritual disciplines. Okay? So um, fasting is an example. Okay? Fasting from food, fasting from social media, fasting from buying stuff, whatever the case may be. Put those guardrails in your life so you can ask yourself and ask yourself the question, is do, does buying clothes or is profit Old Navy or profit Gap or uh, Starbucks, are they defining who I am and what my priorities are? Are they defining what I love and what I should love? Because nobody else is going to put that in place for you. Put times in scripture, reading scripture and spending time in prayer, put those in your life because those will challenge the idols in your life. Again, it's important for us to do this because not, nobody else will do it for you. You might have to cancel your Prime membership. Okay? You might have to cancel Netflix. I'm just picking things that are prevalent in my house that I were thinking about. Right? Why? Not because there's anything wrong with those things, because those are the things that I find myself being impatient. I probably need to put some guardrails in my life. How do I force myself to wait? Because I don't have to wait. So I have to put it on myself to put those things in my own life to do. Right? It, it might be for you something else, right? It might be stop watching remodeling shows, right? You spend more time watching remodeling shows than you read scripture, then remodeling shows are reminding you what you love or reinforcing what you love, not scripture. And lastly, reinforcing God, what reinforcing that God loves you, that you love God. The way that we do that is corporate worship, right? Times of regular times of scripture, reading, and prayer in your households, right? If that's not happening, then you're probably not reinforcing to your children and to yourself what you really love. I grew up in a church that um, it felt like their services were like countless hours. You've all been in those services, right? And worship was constant repetition of the same songs. I could not stand it. I thought this was the, like the worst uh, experience. I was like, I think God gets it by now. We don't need to tell him again. You know? But <laughs> looking back, I am so glad that that repetition, my parents forced me to do that repetition of listening to God's truth week after week after week after week, singing the same songs week after week after week. Why? Because layer upon layer in my own life, things that I love have been defined. Right? Because they, were com- they re- recognized that they were combating not things that I knew, what the culture was telling me, but what my culture was drawing, towards, drawing me towards, which was money, career, etc. Because those things sounded exciting. But the layer upon layer upon layer investing of God's word, God's uh, truths, reinforced the things that I love in my own life and they will uh, in the life of in your life in the life of your children
Okay, that's all I had for you. Now that I've destroyed your experiences of going to the mall and using Amazon and Netflix, right, I think I've done enough damage for today. So let me pray um, as the band comes up. I want, us to, I want to give you guys some time to just reflect on the things that we just talked about today. What routines and rituals in your life, what, are, what kinds of loves are they reinforcing? Is it love for Jesus and his word and his truth and his people? Or is it your own stuff and own self? Uh, let me pray for us, um, and I'll give you some time to kind of just reflect on that. Father, we thank you for this time as we've kind of wrestled with what Amos had to say to the children of Israel. It is easy to dismiss as not relevant to us or difficult to hear. I know it's been a burden for me to even prepare this message because I see the shortcomings in my own life. But I know that this is what it need, what needs to be said and what needs to be heard because it has an impact on the things that I love and how much I love you. I know that it makes an impact in the lives of the people around me, in the lives of brothers and sisters around me, the lives of the uh, less fortunate among us. I pray that you will continue to uh, shape our hearts, shape our minds, shape our loves, that we don't see these experiences that, that we engage with culture as neutral, but recognize that they have a formative experience away from you. Help us recognize that your anger towards the materialism in our lives is not against us, but because but the effects that that has on our own lives, the way it destroys families, the ways it destroys our own spiritual life. And you hate to see that happen to your own children. Pray that we, um, the words that were shared today um, will go forth and bear fruit, that it will be seeds planted deep, that it will have an impact the lives of the people that hear this that we will remember from this day forth that idols can creep in and crowd out the love that you have for us that we might reinforce love for you our love for you in the lives of our families in our churches in the lives of our children in the lives of our families that we might recognize that you are God that you are eternal and that the, your vision of the good life by putting trust in Jesus is supreme and cannot even compare to the things that we give our lives to. We ask all this in Jesus' name.